If you'd open your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to make an attempt to cover verses 8 through 13. And I say an attempt because there's a lot here. And I don't want to necessarily hurry through it. So given the allotted time, we'll see how far we get. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Let me read those verses, and we'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon them. Paul begins here as we jump into verse 8 rather abruptly. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now you see how full this little paragraph is. Just to trace it out very quickly, we have there at the beginning Paul's extended thanksgiving that the grace of God was extended to him. So much so that he could preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to reveal the mystery And then this is the interesting part. Right in the middle of this paragraph, we're told here that one of the functions of the church of Jesus Christ, and this is an eternal function, and that's not my own thought. That's the thought here that Paul relates to us in verse 10, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is making known the manifold wisdom of God to angels. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us with that. Father, we come before you. We recognize and glory in the fact that we have your word opened before us. Lord, you've given us an appetite for it. I pray you would increase that appetite, that we would see it as the great foundation upon which our faith is built. We need no other. You have given us the foundation of the solid rock of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray as we look at these verses this morning that you would help us. Our minds are dull. We need your help. We need enlightenment. We need the help of the Spirit. So we pray that it would please you to send him especially here to help us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of the accusations that I've heard leveled against those who hold to the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of grace themselves being shorthand for belief in the sovereignty of God and his work in the salvation of mankind by grace alone and to his glory alone. One of the things that comes up often is that people say, if you really believe these things, that you are the elect of God, and that in time he is going to bring you unto himself, then necessarily that is going to lead you 
to a life of pride and arrogance. And then it might go on like something like this. How arrogant of you to think that you are one of the elect of God. And I suppose, if not understood correctly, it might lead some to that place. But it's encouraging to me again to see here that Paul, who wrote these doctrines, the ones, the very ones we've studied in the first chapter and many of his epistles contain these very doctrines that we've been talking about, it led him to a far different place. It led him to be humbled and thankful that God would choose him first unto salvation, second to be useful to him in ministry. Now granted, none of us are Apostle Pauls. We aren't given that type of ministry But the same things apply. God has called you, and then he has called you into some type of service for him. So when you look at the eighth verse, and let me remind you as we do this, that verse 2 all the way down through verse 13 seems to be a parenthetical thought. Paul begins verse 1 by saying, for this reason, he picks back up with that in verse 14, where he begins to pray for the Ephesian church. And all that is in the space there in the middle seems to be and seems to be some, a place where the Lord has taken him, inspired, we called it last week, an inspired detour. And so in verse 8, Paul is expressing again his humility. And I think it's helpful to read it in this way when he says, to me, to me of all people. To me, of all people, the Lord has made this grace known. Look at how he describes himself in verse 8. He breaks the rules of grammar here, which Paul often does. And interestingly, he, he most often breaks the rules of grammar in doxology or praise to God. And he says of himself that he is... To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. The breaking of the rules of grammar come in this way. He uses a comparative less to define or to describe a superlative, the least. Leads to the question, how can anyone or anything be less than the least? But yet that's exactly how he refers to himself. He also, in other places in the scripture, calls himself the chief of sinners. He calls himself the least of the apostles. And so these doctrines, which we call high doctrines, concerning our salvation and God's sovereignty and our responsibility and all of these types of things, have not made Paul an arrogant Christian. They've made him a very humble Christian. One who says to me of all people. The Lord has made this grace known. I suspect you have something of that in you. I can suspect that because just like I know me better than anyone else. You know you better than anyone else. 
You know the things you've done, the words you've said, the thoughts that even this morning are racing through your mind. And yet in the face of all of that, here we sit, those that have professed faith in Christ as the redeemed of God, the ones chosen of God, called out of the world by God unto Christ, given a great hope, redeemed. And so we can very often borrow this language of Paul and make it very applicable to our own, to ourselves, to me, of all people. To me, he has made this grace of Christ known. He has saved me. That's the grace of God. We looked at, on Wednesday evening, a psalm, 106. I encourage you to go to that psalm and read it sometime soon. And what you'll find there is a recounting of the failures of the people of God. How God would do a mighty work for them. In the context there of Psalm 106, it's a reminder of how he brought the people across the Red Sea as on dry ground. But they soon forgot his works. They began to grumble and complain. And then twice in that psalm, we read the word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, and I paraphrase, God was gracious to them again. That's really a synopsis of all of our lives, isn't it? We fail, we grumble, we complain, we soon forget his works, we soon forget the greatness of our salvation, but yet God brings us to some point where he awakens us to our condition, we cry out to him, and he disregards all of that, and he is gracious to us yet again. I trust and pray that you know something of that type of grace in your life. What does Paul say here about himself other than he is less than the least of all the saints? He says that it was given to him that he should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I I pray and hope that that phrase sticks in your mind And you want to go home and use the scriptures to flesh out what it means. The unsearchable riches of Christ. If we give the word unsearchable a strict definition, it means something that is past finding out. Something that is untraceable. Something for which there is no map that leads you to an ultimate destination. Paul uses this word only twice in all of his writings. The other place that he uses it is in Romans chapter 11 in verse 33. You might remember it there where he says in in doxology again in high praise to God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So he makes application of this word really in three areas. The judgments and ways of God that we know, the scripture says, his ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But now this time he applies this word to the riches of Christ, the unsearchable riches. You can search the scriptures for a lifetime and still find out more about Jesus Christ.
You can study the scriptures day after day, night after night, and what will happen is the Spirit of God who always points to Christ. That's an interesting thing about the Spirit of God. According to Romans chapter 8, He takes the things of Christ and makes them known. He's pointing everything to Jesus. As you read the Scriptures, the Spirit of God will point out more and more of the beauty of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. There's always more to know about Him. Paul says that he is going to preach these things. Interestingly, even though these riches of Christ are unsearchable and cannot be traced out, he says it is these very things that I am going to preach. And I think he's pointing to this fact. Though the riches of Christ are unsearchable, we are still called to make known what has been made known to us. The riches of Christ being unsearchable, all of you. Who are Christian, all of you who have the Spirit of God dwelling in you know something of the riches of Jesus Christ. And you know something of how richly He has acted toward you. If we were to just begin to contemplate and meditate upon the phrase itself, if we take it right off the page and ask the question, what exactly could be some of these unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ? Just consider these few offices of Christ. He is, as we studied in Sunday school this morning, the one mediator between God and man. That's what Paul says of him in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. That he is mediator points to the fact that he is the one reconciler of God and men. He is the only one that can remove the enmity that exists between mankind and a holy God. If you would be saved, if you would be redeemed, it will be because the mediator has come between you and a holy God and removed all of the enmity that was there and has covered it all with his life's blood. And grace and mercy. We know him as our redeemer. As our savior. As our friend. As our substitute. As our Lord. As our king. And the list of those names go on and on as you read the scriptures. All of these pointing to some aspect of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. He himself said of himself that he was the bread of life. The light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the true vine. All of those are different aspects of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us that he alone is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He is the Lamb which God provided. When you read the book of Revelation, you find there that he alone is the one worthy to come and to take the scroll and to open its seals, which invokes all the praise of heaven because he alone has been found worthy. In the context in which this phrase is found here in Ephesians chapter 3, moving back into chapter 2, it's in the context that he alone is. In his flesh, on the cross, shedding his blood, 
has removed the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile by abolishing the law of commandments that was contained in ordinances. And all of those things that we've just discussed are just the beginnings of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know anything of these riches for yourself? He would have you to know them. Paul says these are the very things that he is to preach among the Gentiles. The word preach there means to herald, to make known. So he's preaching these unsearchable riches to pagans. To heathen, to the Gentiles. Of which the church at Ephesus was comprised. But that's not the only thing that he said here that he has been called to do. You see it here in verse 9. And to make all see. I like the New American Standard rendering of that. It says, to bring to light. What is the administration of the mystery or the fellowship of the mystery? Now, let me remind you, we looked last week at this mystery three times over in these two paragraphs. That word is brought forth and it's in reference to something that is now revealed that was once concealed in the heart and the mind of God. Something that is now made known. And Paul here is saying that he is being used of God to make known, to bring to light this mystery that once was shrouded in the economy of God. Notice he says that it has been mysterious from the beginning of the ages, has been hidden in God who created all things. It's vain for us to ask questions like, why for so long? Did God keep this mystery concealed? Why for so long did he not make it known immediately? Why were there all of those years, thousands of years leading up to this point in redemptive history that these things simply were not known in this way? We looked at verses last week that said, yes, That the Gentiles would be brought in. That Christ was a light to the Gentiles. But not with such focus. Not with such clarity. To reveal that they would be brought in the same way. on On the grounds of grace. And by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says here. That he is revealing these things. In the 10th and 11th verse. These things that have from the beginning of the ages have been hidden in God who created all things. It's interesting if you were to ask the question, why does Paul bring this to the table? In this context that God created all things. My assumption is that he is reminding us here of the sovereignty of God. He created all things. Through Jesus Christ. And to this point it had pleased him. To keep these truths shrouded in mystery. 
but no more. No longer. Now the top has been, the lid has been removed. The mystery has been exposed. And then perhaps one of the greatest parts of this little paragraph is how it is to be made known. It's not just through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. It's through the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is how mysterious these aspects of the gospel are or were. The angels, we are told by Peter, desire to look into this thing called grace because they know nothing of it. Angels do not experience grace in the way that we do. The scripture speaks of elect angels and fallen angels. Fallen angels cannot be redeemed. The scriptures say they are reserved in chains for judgment. And so as the angelic host looks upon this thing of grace given to fallen humanity, it puzzles them. They are desiring to know more about it because it involves their head, their king, Christ. And it involves his creation. But notice the point here. It's the church that is making these things known. I say this from time to time, and I'm not trying to just beat a loud drum. I really know it to be true in my own heart and life, and I suspect it's true in all of our hearts and our lives. We think far too little of Christ's church. The bride of Christ, the family of God, is part of his eternal purpose part of his eternal plan from the very beginning. And all of it is bound up in the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is it that the church is making known to these principalities? Paul calls it the manifold wisdom of God. The multifaceted or iridescent wisdom of God. The multicolored wisdom of God. This is what we are making known to the angelic host, to ourselves and all around us. And isn't isn't this a great description of the wisdom of God, the multifaceted nature of it? Only God can make strength out of weakness. Only He can bring life out of death. Only He leads us to glory through suffering and shame. Only He can bring blessing by means of cursing, etc. All of these things that make no logical sense to the natural mind, according to the manifold wisdom of God, He brings them out. His wisdom reconciles things that are seemingly irreconcilable. His wisdom brings to pass things that we see no way 
for it to happen. Probably the greatest expression of that truth is found in the 8th chapter of Romans where we are taught that all things are working together for our good. All things. Hard things. Grievous things. Good and beautiful things. And all in between are being worked to our good. But in context here, the manifold wisdom of God is to make two people into one. Into his church. To tear down the wall that separated. To abolish the law contained in commandments and ordinances. Much has been written and asked as to which which of the angelic groups is the church making this known. And, and commentators are on both sides. Get good men on both sides. Some say that the church is making the manifold wisdom of God known to the fallen angels. Preaching the gospel of Christ. Showing forth the gospel of Christ. Showing that yes, indeed, their day is coming. Others say, and I tend to to lean this direction, others say that it is to the good, elect, holy angels that these things are being made known. The reason I lean that direction is because usually when it's the demonic host that is involved, like in Ephesians chapter 6, there is some representation of the struggle between either God and the angels or man and the angels. But here there's no representation of that struggle. And here it's the wisdom of God that's being made known. And it just makes sense to me, perhaps it will to you as well, that these holy angels are the ones most interested in the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God. This is our great place. And the plan, eternal plan and economy of God You and I get to, in a sense, preach along with Paul this mystery, the manifold wisdom of God. Paul concludes this section in verse 11 and 12, reiterating the fact that this is according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says this. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Notice those three words. Boldness, access, confidence. These are the things that you and I have as we approach the God of Scripture. And we only have them in and through Jesus Christ. There is no boldness that you can have before God on your own. There is no access that you can have to God on your own. You have no confidence before Him on your own. All of these things come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So if we were to take these things and look at their opposites, the opposites would apply not to believers but to unbelievers. 
boldness, the opposite being fear. Access, the opposite being no access. Or your way is blocked. Confidence, or at least the ground of confidence before God, you have no confidence before Him. All of these things come to us, notice, through faith in Him. There is a day, the Scripture speaks of it, when all of mankind will be summoned to the throne of God to give an account of themselves before Him. What a dreadful day for some. What a glorious day for others. There will be some there who are covered in the blood of Christ. It's this group that Paul would write to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The opposite of that is that there is all condemnation for those who are outside of him. For those that have not drawn near to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you have these things when you approach the Lord, God of heaven and earth? Then you will have them in Christ alone. The blessing is you can leave today knowing that you have them. That you have boldness, access, and confidence. We can take these things and not just apply them to that day which is coming, but to today, here and now. The only way that we have any ability to boldly approach the throne of grace and have access to have a freedom of approach and any ground of confidence whatsoever is because we are in union with Jesus Christ. We are following him in to the throne of God. Paul ends this in verse 13 by saying, Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. And he goes so far as to tell the Ephesian church that his tribulations are for their glory. And as I read that this week and thought on it some, a question came to my mind. And the question is this, what if Paul operated by the common assumptions of our day? Assumptions even of Christians rated by the, by the common assumptions of our day. Have you ever heard anyone say something like this? Man, the, the way is difficult and it's hard. And I wonder if this is a sign from God that it's not his will for me. You've heard that. You've thought that. Let me read you something that Paul says. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? 
I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant. Listen to what he says. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, of robbers, and of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness Besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. What if Paul had said, the way's hard. Can't do the will of God for me. Well, he reminds the Ephesians here. He says, do not lose heart. At my tribulations for you. In other words, don't faint and don't grow weary. Don't feel sorry for me, is what he's saying. There is no reason for you to feel sorry for me because my tribulations actually are working for your glory. How so? It was because he was in prison that he was enabled to write what we call the prison epistles, right? Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. Of which today we are still able to access them, to read them, and to study them. So the same thing that was true of the Ephesians are true for us. His tribulations are our glory. The things he suffered are for our glory. And he endured to the very end. We should as well. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that sometimes God will not hedge up your way through difficulty. You need to be discerning. You need to be wise. I'm just saying that need not be your default. To think just because something is hard, it can't be the will of God. Very often it is. And so here in this paragraph again. We have the great humility of Paul to me of all people. To me of all people, this grace was given. To preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To bring to light the stewardship of the mystery that has been hidden from the beginning of ages. But is now being made manifest and made known by the church to the principalities and powers according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the boldness, the access, and confidence that we can have before you these things given to us by your Son. 
Lord, I pray we would all know them. That we would all know the mediating work of Jesus Christ. Standing between ourselves and you and removing the enmity, the warring that is there. Lord, I pray we would all be able to say with Paul, to me, to me of all people, with all of the things that I have thought, said, and done, to me, you would make this grace known. Father, we give you thanks and praise for it. And we do so through the boldness, the access, that we have to you in Jesus Christ. So we pray in his name. Amen.